Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to Starkville. Baseball Hall of Famer Jason Stark. And then the robot said, strike. That's why you're going in the Hall of Fame. It's an inside the park home run. Doug Glanville. Mike tried his coffee at Starbucks with a double latte skinny. Doug, are you ready to make some podcast magic? I am ready. Bring on the magic wand. Let's do it. <laughs> Greetings and welcome to Starkville, presented by Tops. Check out Tops Project 70, celebrating 70 years of Tops baseball cards. Also, check out the Athletic Baseball Show all this week. You get incredible baseball talk four days a week, and that even includes us every Tuesday. So let me introduce myself. I'm Jason Stark. I write about baseball for the Athletic. I'm joined, as always, by my good friend, writer, broadcaster, Professor, distinguished former major leaguer Doug Glanville. And Doug, I know we try to talk ourselves into thinking we are reasonably intelligent, but today we will be in the presence of true intelligence because James Holzauer will be joining us. And Doug, he was on Jeopardy two years ago and he ripped off 32 wins in a row. That seems hard, right? Yeah, it's it's slightly difficult, I think. Um I can't say. I'm trying to think if I had 32 in a row of anything, let alone Jeopardy. So, not sure. Um, Maybe I didn't strike out for 32 (laughs) of that. That's possible. But uh, I'd like to also add to my resume very quickly, uh, Cowboy. I I rode a horse in between shows. Uh, The horse's horse's name was Biscuit. Uh, I was a little nervous because he kind of liked to live on the edge. And we were going up kind of a mountainous region. So I had the trust biscuit, and we became bonded as one. And so I had to give him a big hug at the end to thank him for not ju- dumping me off a cliff and not being able to appear on this show this week. Yeah. So thank you, biscuit. It was very I'd like fun. To add my thanks to biscuit. Um, yeah. So let's Please. see. Writer, broadcaster, professor, cowboy. I have to do that now. Cowboy. Right, you like it? Yeah, your your titles are taking too long. Uh, all right, James Holzhauer will be joining us in a couple of minutes, but Doug. Uh, you know where we need to start the show. Same place we started last week uh, with baseball's crackdown on spin rate and all the sticky, gloppy stuff that pitchers have been rubbing on their hands. Um, so first, a little full disclosure. The crackdown went into effect Monday. Uh, we recorded the show before those games were played, so we don't know exactly what drama uh, took place last night, Monday night, as you're listening to this. But I think we'd know pretty safely this is going to be a wild week uh, umpires inspecting every single pitcher starter reliever who enters a game uh that has a chance to get messy doug tell me what you'll be watching for this week well i i would like to see kind of like a 
TSA pre-check station on the mound. I think that's the wise way to do it. I mean, come on, that's, it's inefficient. We can we like you know use technology to figure this out? It's some sort of scanner. Uh, but yeah, I, I I just I mean, of course, this is going to be really intense. I mean, because you know I know the pitchers have made the argument about wow, you know you're going to just change things midstream, right? All this, but you know. We're trying to enforce the rules, and we've seen the disaster of acting slowly in baseball's history and what that led to, from PEDs to sign stealing to whatever. And the thing that it's always interesting to me to watch is you have this culture of kind of paranoia that also makes things go off the rail even quicker to the degrees that they do. Uh, because players look around, oh, this guy's doing that. Oh, my, you know, I don't want to lose an edge. And so you start to feel like there's this pressure to keep up with something that may be completely a ghost. You're not really sure. You haven't totally identified it. And even when you do, you say, well, instead of saying, well, that's that's illegal or let me make the game better. It's like, let me now one-up you because you're you're competing with me. And and that's a bad cycle. And I remember when we were in spring training one year when PEDs were really rampant uh, and clearly starting to become you know more open I think there was a, a physician for one of the teams that came in and did a speaking tour to players. And the line he always said was, you're forcing me as a clean player to do things I wouldn't ordinarily do just to keep up with you, just to be on the field. And I think that's what you're seeing you know, times 10 right now because the advantages are, are first of all so measurable now with the analytics and the data that's really coming out that you know the value of a 0.5% advantage. You actually know what that means. And so you can't let any one inch give, you can't give one inch. And the, the instead of the game stepping back and say, no, let's like really mandate this level playing field, there's all this room for people to just one-up the next one. And they're not doing it in a, in a constructive way. They're doing it to cheat and to break rules and to find a way to outdo the other one. And that's a bad cycle. So I think baseball jumping on, yeah, midstream, yeah, exactly. You, you, because this is where it goes. By the end of the year, if you don't address this, they'll, they'll be using, you know, Gorilla Glue and Mars space paint and whatever else. I mean, that's where it goes. And, and so what is truth? I, that's the tough thing of what's actually happening versus what is perceived to happen. And I'll give you an example. Like when I was playing back in the day and I, I, I remember... And I'll try. I'll leave the guy nameless, but I was I was leading off, and Marlon Anderson was on deck, and we we found out or we heard through the grapevine that one pitcher would use Vaseline and put it on his teeth or oh. on his mouth to put on right. That's what that's oh what we heard. God. Right? Could be untrue. Could be untrue. But as we know, players have been you know pitchers have been doing this forever. Now then they've also been hiding it forever. Okay, that's the other thing. So it's not like they were open with it all the time before they had it on their belt and catchers had it on their shin guards and all this other stuff, right? So there was all kinds of trickery going on. So that was the rumor. Now, was it true? I have no idea. But when I struck out on a pitch that looked crazy and moved really weird, I walked past Marlin to go to the dugout and I acted like I was like brushing my teeth <laughs> with, with Vaseline. And, and so he barely could hit. He was laughing so hard. But that's what happened. Now, take that with all the data we have now. And what would you do with that information? Well, now what's happening is pitchers go, oh, Vaseline on your teeth, that works? They just one-up it. It's not like I'm going to report the guy. And so that's the problem. You know, there's there's all this code of silence 
because and instead of just not you know going about and competing, they're going out and saying, "Let me find a, a, a way to be better." So take the Astros. Or were they the only team stealing signs? Probably not. But what did they do? They took it to like NASA level, right? And that's the problem. That's what happened. So you need to check it. So I agree with Major League Baseball that they're they're getting on this now. And I'm not saying they have a perfect solution, but you know what? You got to you got to do something. You can't just let there. And I pitchers, yeah, sympathetic. I, I pitched back into college. Yeah, the ball slips. I, I they're they're completely right. They got to figure out some some other way because they're also taking a legitimate thing and turning it into something completely corrupt. And, and that's not unintentional. Uh, do you think guys have been putting spider tack on their teeth? Because that's going to require a lot of <laughs> dental work. <laughs> that, that would be problematic. Yeah. Uh, as we know, there was a lady who put Gorilla Glue on her hair to keep it in place. That was a disaster, required surgery and all that. So, But, but her yeah, hair was perfect. We, we can't go there. Her hair was right on spot. Uh, and then I do actually like your... TSA pre-check idea because <laughs> nobody wants pitchers taking off their shoes before they pitch, right? <laughs> so, that I don't yeah, well, see. This will streamline that part. So I like that idea. I don't know how it would work, but get on that, okay? Uh, for me personally, I will be watching the umpires, I think even more than the pitchers themselves. Uh, think about how these umpires inspecting, what, what is it, like, going to be like 100 pitchers a day? How... Yeah. how how are the umpires going to be viewed if a day goes by and they find nothing? Or how are they going to be viewed if they eject four pitchers on one team? Um, so are they going to be issuing, issuing warnings, um, asking guys to change their gloves or caps? Or are they going to like come right out of the box going right into ejections and suspensions and like all the, the furor that's going to cause? Um, have they been trained to know what they're looking for? I don't know that they have. Um, is it going to turn these games into a, like this circus of stickiness? I, I, I just don't want it to turn mm -hmm. into too much of a sideshow because that's just the last thing right. this sport needs right now. No, I, I agree. I mean, another point is what what if you eject the wrong guy? Like, what if well, you wrong? I mean. Or you know, you you go out there and you say, okay, I'm I'm guns a blazing, and then you know, I mean, yeah, you, you should, you need, you know, Rick Sutcliffe, I think, posted a picture about uh, the issue with not using sunscreen, you know, the, the danger. So that's real. You know, you're playing in, <clears throat> you're playing in some places that are extremely hot or whatever sun. Uh, it's dangerous. You can use sunscreen and, in you know, during the day. I don't know what happens, though, the when day, the game right. starts during the day, or during sunlight and it ends at night. That's right. a hard one. Look, we'll be talking about this pretty much round the clock for, for the next week. So we'll, we'll have more to discuss, I'm sure, when we reconvene here next week. But I also want to bring up a column that I wrote in The Athletic a few days ago about what's essentially the next frontier uh, in baseball's fight to restore some sort of balance between hitters and pitchers. Uh, because you can't, you can't think that just by reducing spin rate, you've solved everything. And the other frontier is velocity. You know, we've seen spin rates go down over the last week or so as the, this crackdown on spider tack and all this super glue stuff uh, has approached. But you know what never goes down? Velocity. It never goes down. The average fastball now is the fastest it's been in the recorded history of baseball. 
almost 93 and a half miles an hour. So, uh, Doug, here's my first question for you. Uh, You played nine seasons in in the big leagues. Even if baseball gets spin rates under control, how big a priority is it to also find some way to help hitters deal with all these dudes throwing 98 to 103 miles an hour every single game? I mean, it's a big deal, but they, as a sport and as an entertainment vehicle, have to decide what's important to value. I mean, that's the that's the crux of it. Uh, if you want to see more balls in play, if you want to see, <clears throat> which I think people do want to see, I think you want to see more action, you want to see an ability to score a run without having to hit home runs, then, you know, you have to find a way to address velocity because it's it's swing and miss stuff. And if nothing's happening, balls are not in play. That you know, then you're relying on home runs, and you're relying on uh, these big outcomes. And yes, runs are people are still scoring runs. That's not the problem. It's at the it's the action, it's the pace, it's the emptiness of right. the game right now. And and so I think they have to really decide. It seems like there's an appetite for it, and whether it's the mound distance or whether you know. But when you talk about futility and hitting, you're going back to years when the mound was lowered. I mean, that that was the response back in, what, 68, right? Saying, okay, this is a disaster. Uh, we're pretty much at that level again. We're scoring runs, but balls are not in play. And the games are taking longer for nothing to happen. Um, so, I, I, you know, for me, you know, the, the challenge is what the trade-offs are. And, mm-hmm. you know, entertainment is, is should be central and they're going to have to measure this stuff closely as they are, continue to say, all right, well, what are we really trying to achieve here and really get the data behind it? Well, you know, we talked about this quite a bit when Theo Epstein was here a few weeks ago. Uh, for people out there who have never heard that episode, you can still listen to it. Uh, Theo is fantastic. And he talked about that idea of moving the mound back a foot, which they're about to do in the Atlantic League in a month or so. Um, but... I, I don't know about you. I don't think that's ever going to happen in the big leagues. Uh, so what I did was collect other ideas from people around the game. And I'll tell you what, I'm going to give you a few. Uh, let's try to zip through them fast and you can tell me what you like and what you hate. Okay, you ready? Uh, l- limit shifts. Uh, I mean, the thought here is uh, we, we need more level swings. We need to get the single back into the game. How do you incentivize that? Put some holes out there again. You know, I don't I don't love it. I don't love it because I, I don't have a problem with teams saying, hey, like, we're defending you. You know, like, it's like in football. I mean, I guess you can't have, like, contact at the line, you know, certain things or there's certain rules. So maybe you, you come up with something where, you know, Manny Machado is not trying to catch a ball in the right field warning track or something. But I, I just think, you know, I put the onus more on whatever adjustments you can make as a hitter. And I, and I know it's advantage pitcher right now. But there's there's not enough of an incentive to hit those singles you're talking about. That's the thing. There's no incentive. What Like hit, hit for a higher batting average. Who cares if you hit 15 points higher but lose 10 home runs? Like that's the math. So until you adapt that, it doesn't, it doesn't have any impact. You could, you could leave the entire left side of the field open, which is done. And it's not like people are saying, hey, let me hit it over there. Some are, but most, are, most of those players aren't making their living solely on the home run. Wow. Uh, so I, I don't know. I just don't – I don't think there's – you need more than just saying, okay, shift, go away. You know, you have to – I think there's more to it than, 
than that. And I, like I said, hey, we're playing defense. I'm giving you this hole over here. I, and look, as a hitter, I know I'm not saying that's easy, but where they move, they are creating opportunity. And maybe it's hard for a hitter who's been in the league seven years to say, let me change my swing. But if you're you know, a young person coming up and you realize that there's an advantage to hitting the ball from the right field line to the left field line, why wouldn't you do that? Unless they tell you, hit home runs. <laughs> so, so uh, I don't know. I think that's the bigger issue. Well, we could, we could spend the whole show debating shifts. I, here's my prediction. I think there will be limits on shifts in the big leagues sooner than later. Um, I, I'm, there's definitely a change in philosophy about this in front offices that I'm detecting. And then think about players. Um, hitters hate shifts, most of them. A lot of pitchers hate shifts. I think that's one thing you could actually get players to support. All right, here's another one. Quick. Fix the strike zone. I mean, I know we're talking about robot umps. We've had a lot that's of happen. calls. But I think that also happens. That, yeah, that will happen. So I, I don't... You know, I don't know what the data is. What's the data saying about it? Like, is it well? The problem with the, calling lower strikes. The, the strike? problem with the with the automated strike zone is that balls that just tick a little fragment of the strike zone are being called strikes, and nobody in the park thinks they're a strike except the robot, the computer. So they're <laughs> going to have to tweak the strike zone itself. And the question is, how? Like, they're not, they're not going to make it wider. Uh, I think they're going to lower it. Uh, that's what they did in the Atlantic League. They lowered a little bit. Um, like right now, the definition of unhittability is 98 to 102 at the letters. It wasn't unhittable for you, but for most people. Uh, all right, here's another one. Roster limits. The thinking here is, um, do teams really need nine fire-breathing relievers waiting to come in and throw 100? They don't. So how do you make sure they don't have them? Make it illegal. Um, limit the number of relief pitchers that you can carry. What do you think? I like that. I do. I like that because I, the specialization is another element of it that's really difficult. You know, the, the starters or the openers and then the constant matchups. I mean, hitters have so many different things working at it. They have velocity. They have shifts. They have illegal substances on the ball. And they have a specialist in the bullpen to to work just for you, right? So to counter you as a hitter. So yes, that would be one frontier where you don't have the ability to rely on all these different arms to get you out. So yeah, I like that. Yeah, that's another thing that's going to happen. It was actually supposed to happen last year. They you know, they postponed it because of the pandemic um, for obvious reasons, but I think next year that will happen. Uh, all right, here's one that we actually touched on, um, making stolen bases easier. And the reason... This relates to what we're talking about is um, if you want more level swings, you've got to incentivize singles. So if you create a world where instead of needing three singles in an inning to score, which is almost impossible these days, with if stolen bases become more accessible, maybe you only need one. What do you think about this, Doug? I like it. You know, I, I think the it, it speaks to a lot of issues, right? It's the action factor. It's, um, you know, other incentives to get on base besides hitting the ball out of the ballpark, putting the ball in play. Those all lead to, okay, get on base any way you can and beat the shift, whatever. And now you can steal some bags. And so, yeah, are you going to get four hits in a row off of Jacob Dugram? The answer is no. Uh, but you may be able to get one and a stolen base or something or something else. That's, that's an opportunity, and that makes Dugram think differently. 
uh, as it's like throw as hard as you can and good luck trying to hit it out of the ballpark. So, um, yep. yeah, so I, I, I absolutely like that. Okay, I'll give you one more. There were 10 ideas in this piece, but, uh, you know, some of them were way outside the box, okay? And I just thought this was so interesting that people are actually talking about this. I've had people in front offices bring it up to me now in separate conversations over the course of the last four or five weeks. So I'm going to throw it out there. What about two designated hitters, Doug? Uh, You could have a DH for the pitcher and a second DH for the weakest hitter, a guy who might actually be your best defender in your lineup. Uh, it doesn't really relate to velocity, but it does a, It does allow you to create more offense, I guess, theoretically. Well, being that I was probably that guy in 2004, I'm going to reject this one completely. Um, <laughs> but I, well, what I don't like about it is you're starting to march your way to becoming a different sport. Like, you know, fine, you want to play football and you're – you're on one side of the ball and your defense and you're on offense and you're just two different planets. That's football. I get it. But baseball is supposed to be much more geared outside of the pitcher is, you know, that you're part of offense and defense. And I think that you coaches and managers make those decisions every day. And I think that's part of the fun of constructing a lineup. And if you just have a bunch of offensive guys and you just say, okay, then pretty soon, why not just have nine great offensive players and just have nine defenders and just have two different you know, that to me, that's where you could go. And then to me, you're far away from baseball. But I guess the future could hold something else. <laughs> that That is indeed the challenge. All right, Doug, that's good stuff from you. Uh, interesting ideas from the people I talk to. Uh, if Theo ever gets tired of fixing baseball, uh, they can just put you and me in charge. What could possibly go wrong there? Absolutely. Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. We wouldn't get any trivia, but we would fix the game. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Building a portfolio with Fidelity Basket Portfolios is kind of like making a sandwich. It's as simple as picking your stocks and ETFs, sort of like your meats and other topics, and managing it as one big, juicy investment. Mmm, now that's pretty good. Learn more at fidelity.com baskets. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC. All right, Doug, it's time to welcome in this week's distinguished visitor to Starkville. It's a guy who just two years ago won 32 consecutive episodes of Jeopardy. Uh, He's now a regular on another amazing show, The Chase. And in his other life, uh, he tells people he's a professional sports better. But now, Doug, his greatest achievement of all is he writes for The Athletic. (laughs) <laughs> on how to bet on sports. He's the legend, James Holzauer. James, welcome to Starkville. Hi, Jason. Thanks for having me. Hi, Doug. James, fantastic. Looking forward to it. That's a great honor for me. You know, I, um, I'm a child of the 90s and aughts, and I grew up outside Chicago, so I remember watching Doug on TV. I'm still mad they let him go to the Phillies. <laughs> um, and I've been a fan of Jason's all the way back to the Rumblings and Rumblings <laughs> columns back in the day. 
Hey, that's awesome. Uh, all right, well, as long as you brought this up, uh, I know you did grow up as a Cubs fan. So do you have any golden memories of Doug Glanville doing his thing? <laughs> uh, I don't know that a particular thing step sticks out of my mind, but I'll tell you what sticks out of my mind. I'm a, I'm a big stats guy. You know, this is how I got into gambling is uh, I love the statistics. And I know, you know, as soon as Doug went to the Phillies, he's suddenly putting up 200 hits, you know, like uh, <laughs> it, it angered me. Just like uh, seeing, seeing him blossom elsewhere. Sorry, Doug. <laughs> yeah. Well, the beauty of that it's, is it sounds like, like an ex Cubs thing. Well, I got my 200th hit off of the Cubs. That was the the sweetest revenge possible. So, uh, <laughs> I, I, that was uh, yeah. That trade was was tough. But uh, it was December 23rd, 1997. I was uh, a couple of days before Christmas. Unfortunately, I lost my grandfather the the day before, the night before. So I was torn because I was drafted by the Cubs and was hoping it would kind of work out there. But in, in some ways, they gave me an opportunity because I went to a place I could start. So that's that's what it's all about. Yeah. James, you sound like a guy who's, who thinks that ex-Cubs sometimes have a more prosperous life and times <laughs> than current Cubs. Has that been has that been a thing? Well, you know, you you kind of get used to the suffering. I mean, today's Cubs fans have just have no idea what it's been like right. for the last half century right. of, uh, you know, just like, oh, that year we almost made the playoffs. This is how we measure time, you know. <laughs> a big, a big time as a Cub fan. I, I don't know. You, you always uh, regret the ones that get away and do stuff somewhere else, right? I think well, it's just a natural thing. Well, where were you, so where were you in '97 when we had our epic, successful 0 and 14 start? Does that does that ring any bells for you? I remember, uh, you know, just keep keeping track of all the losses, like like a prisoner counting down the days on his uh, on his wall. <laughs> it was something. Doug, that's what you were doing too, right? <laughs> I was, I was, I was uh, trying to figure out if I was had a future in this sport at that time. So uh, it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't a great start. And uh, we looking back though, we we faced like a Hall of Fame pitcher every night. You know, that was it was Braves and and Marlins. Uh, four series between them, and it was it was ridiculous. It was a Cy Young Award winner, Hall of Famer. So yeah, and you know, close games, but fourteen of them didn't work out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Twenty four years later, still making excuses. Enough. <laughs> All right, look, uh, well, we're going to ask you more about Glanville's career later. But James, first, tell us about what you'll be writing here at the Athletic. Sure. So, you know, there's kind of been an explosion of sports betting content in response to, obviously, it was legalized in a lot more states a few years back, and, you know, more people are interested in it, and they don't know where to go. Um, So my columns, you know, they're kind of written for someone who is really serious about trying to win at this. You know, you're not just a guy who's like, oh, you know, I'm a Bears fan. I'm going to bet on the Bears every single week. It's more like, you know, someone who is studying this they, they they care about getting an extra two percent edge here or there and uh we talk about like how professional approaches this how we have, we have a thing called the big that's uh you have to lay 110 dollars to win 100 dollars on most bets in football and basketball things like that you know that's the house advantage we talk about how to reduce the house advantage to close to zero or even turn it in your favor over the house you know there there are ways to you, you have your opinions, but there are ways to take your opinions and make more money off them, or at least lose less if you're going to uh, lose. And I think that there is a real opening out there for this kind of, you know, a professional shows you, gives you an inside look of 
how to do this and do it the best you can. All right. Well, let's ask you about baseball specifically. Um, you know, I've I've read a lot about <laughs> some of the killings you made betting on baseball back in like 2006, seven, eight. What's changed about baseball and how betting on baseball works in those last 10, 15 years? Yeah. So, you know, there were already sites out there like Baseball Prospectus that were kind of trying to dive into how the more advanced statistics would help you get a better idea of who was going to win games and pennants and things like that. But it was still kind of a new thing. You know, the sports books weren't paying as much attention to the the new stats and how you could use it to better predict how the season's going to go. You know, they kind of just put their best guess of what the odds should be out there and, uh, you know, let the market sort it out. So, you know, what would happen is the, the people like me who were stats savvy would kind of use the these numbers to do a better job of crunching the odds and we we would like the the, the sports betting marketplace you know they, they put an opening line out there but it adjusts it's it's like an ipo in a stock market you you can say okay here's what facebook stock should be worth but really the market is going to decide you know people will buy and sell if, they, if the price gets too high they sell it if it gets too low they buy it and this happens um, for the odds on every sports game also. And so, they would, you know, the market would set these odds and people like me would come in and bet them closer to where they should be. But I would say the big difference now is that they, the people who open the odds are more stats savvy. They uh, do a better job setting the number and it makes it harder for people like me to get an edge. So it's it's definitely a tougher marketplace to bet into now than it used to be. You know, uh, I think any sportsbook manager worth his salt is reading the athletic reading fan graphs you know they they know when a wander franco gets called up hey this isn't just some other rookie this this guy's good he's going to make an immediate impact you know things like that yeah, so, so what kind of advice would you give to people who are getting into betting baseball now that it's basically the most accessible that it's ever been well well if they can invent a time machine and go back 20 years that would be <laughs> a, a lot more profitable enterprise that's the first thing i would say but um you know, baseball is not a bad sport to bet in general. There's one big advantage it has is we talked about the big, you know, they uh, charge a certain house advantage basically to, to make a bet. And that's lower in baseball than it is for most other sports. Assuming you're uh, you're choosing a, a sports book that deals what they call a dime line. You know, it's it's essentially like half the, the edge the house would normally take on a football or basketball game. And that makes it a a better sport to analyze. There's more numbers out there. So if you're if you're a numbers person, I think it's one of the better sports to, to look at. You know, you have kind of a string of individual batter pitcher matchups, which are easier to model. If you're a, uh, a stats geek, then like how the, the five players on a basketball court are going to have their cohesion work together. It's often tougher to, to analyze than just how one batter and one pitcher are going to do their business. Oh, and James, I mean, the... Um... You know, what have you seen in terms of the convergence of sort of betting and risk assessment and the actual game on the field? It seems like they're getting more and more closely related to how managers make decisions, teams are structured. There's constantly, you know, a sort of risk assessment that's happening, some of which eliminates certain plays, right? Whether it's a bunt or a stealing third or all these. So... How do you think that's going to play out in this sort of betting world where they're so much more intertwined in how the game is actually executed? Yeah, it's a a great question. I think that there are definitely a lot of people who think like me running the front offices right now. And I I guess, you know, I'll I'll take a little bit of the blame for everyone who claims that things are ruining baseball, like uh, spin rates and shifts and things like that. I was uh, kind of 
you know, an, an early believer in a lot of these things. Um, and, you know, it, it doesn't surprise me at all to see how these things have taken over the game because, you know, there are areas where people who model these numbers, they, they know there's an advantage here. We're going to, we're going to take it, you know, every, every little 1% edge we can get, uh, towards maximizing the return we can get on our salary is, uh, you know, that's just the direction the sport is taking. And I'm not entirely sure that it improves the the viewer experience, but, you know, the teams are really doing everything they can to maximize their winning potential. You know, I'm a Hall of Fame voter, and uh, one of my favorite uh, betting stories about you is the one where you you were betting on Ken Griffey Jr. to get elected to the Hall of Fame, <laughs> and your wife was terrified that you did that? What exactly happened there? <laughs> yeah, so it was the day before the voting announcement, the voting um you know, results were going to be announced. And I, I saw this, this opportunity, you know, I just had some money sitting around in my sportsbook account and I can, I can lay, uh, it was $50,000 to win 500, but it's, it's Ken Griffey Jr. You know, like the, the guy's polling at a hundred percent with 50% of the precincts reporting. There's no way he's going to dip below 75, right? Like he could, he could get arrested for murder and they'd probably still just elect him to the hall of fame anyway, <laughs> because it's tomorrow and they're not going to change it. Uh, right. So like the, this to me was just a free $500. And I was like, bragging to my wife about, hey, like, I just want a free $500 for just for checking this thing out. And she's like, oh, how much did we risk to uh, to do it? And then, yeah, you don't you don't tell your wife about stuff like that, <laughs> what I learned. Okay, so th th that's a lesson you learned from that particular bet? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you, you often, they, they call these bets bridge jumps uh, in, in gambling. It's kind of a, a double meaning because, first of all, everyone's jumping off the bridge, so you jump off with them. But then if you, if you, lay 50,000 to win 500 and you lose, you feel like jumping off a bridge afterwards too. <laughs> and you, you don't want to make too many of these bridge jump bets because they really sting you when they lose. But like some, sometimes there are just things that cannot go wrong. And that was one yeah. of them. Right. So, uh, so is that the most nervous that your wife has ever gotten over one of your bets? Uh, probably. I don't uh, <laughs> often just give her a complete rundown of exactly <laughs> what we're gambling on that day. But uh <laughs> That's about well, the worst one I'd say. Well, yeah. she knew after the fact, right? It was after the fact. <laughs> or did she oh, do? no. I, uh, <laughs> I made the mistake of telling her as soon as I clicked submit. Uh. <laughs> yeah, but you were right, though. That was free money. Um, yeah. hey, you know, you kind of touched on this. Um, before you became a better and a Jeopardy champ, uh, I know you wanted to be a baseball GM. And I actually remember reading a, a, a Washington Post story about you during your Jeopardy run where Billy Bean was quoted and he said something to the effect of we got to get this guy in baseball so just curious did, did Billy or any other team ever contact you about working in baseball ops Billy did not personally contact me but I think uh, there were five baseball teams that reached out to me at some uh, some level I had some conversations with a few of them um, they're you know, there's a lot of cities that I'm not interested in relocating to that uh, that would be a problem getting in the way. But I think like the, the Mariners and the Cubs were two that I considered. And I, I spoke a little bit with uh, both of them. And it's, you know, a potentially interesting thing to get into down the road. I don't know. I, I'm under the impression that the front office types work like really long hours. And that's that's a, a problem for me. I have a little girl at home. I don't want to be gone 80 hours a week. So, you know, it's a... It might happen down the road, but we'll see. Uh, all right. Well, so in case any of those teams are listening, if you were running a team right now, what, like, what's the sort of inefficiency in the game that you would try to exploit or the edge that you would try to find, kind of like what the Rays do so well? Yeah, I mean, honestly, baseball, I think, has uh, 
they, they've plucked all the low-hanging fruit already. I think that there's other sports where there are much easier things they can do. You know, I mean, like, to get, just to give you a, a big example, in the NFL, you know, teams are finally starting to, to pass it more. But, like, for years and years, it's been so obvious that teams would be passing, like, you know, 75 80% of the time and just running enough to keep the defense honest because passing plays are so much more effective on a uh, – a per play basis and you know like for, for the longest time they'd still run on the majority of plays now nowadays they pass like 60 percent of the time it's still it's not high enough but it's getting a lot closer to where it should be and that's you know uh just an, an obvious example that comes to mind but i mean really you know there's there's not a ton of obvious opportunities in the baseball world right now you know teams are already doing the stuff they can and i think uh you know they have access to some data i don't and maybe you know they can use things like the advanced pitch FX to find some littler inefficiencies that I'm not aware of. Well, James, I think, you know, one thing that was compelling about your article was how, and I'm, I'm learning some of these terms, I really don't know a lot about gambling in, set, in sense, but you mentioned like sharps, you talk about you know, a certain level of expertise. So there are these insiders to a certain degree that are know the sport of, the, of, of gambling. They know the sport of betting uh, well, they're, they're true experts. So I'm, I'm curious that there also seems to be a way that the odds or things are rebalanced sometimes based on the experts that are leaning in to certain bets, right? They, it's like, okay, wait a minute, if all these experts are betting this, right, there's sort of a, a, a rebalancing effect. So do you think in sports that you can sort of, you know, squeeze all the juice out of the fruit by figuring out how to get value and risk and then the, the sports are constantly forced to readjust. Like, where does this actually go? Uh, you know, take basketball. Like, all right, everybody's firing up three-pointers, right? Well, if, if at some point everybody's shooting three-pointers and everybody's doing the same thing, what have you seen in your experience where then what, ha- what actually has to happen next for you to still maintain a sport, real fair competition? Yeah, it's an interesting uh, thing. You know, this is another one of those, like, obvious things that to me when I was uh, younger I was thinking like the, a three-pointer is worth 50% more than a two-pointer how are teams not you know just doing some simple math here and determining hey we should be chucking up threes all the time um, but you see uh, w- w- one of the things that's interesting to me is like the first teams to adjust are the ones that are like directly in the face of something so I um, I back when Daryl Morey was still with the Houston Rockets he was one of the people I, uh, I chatted with and when the kind of hey James wants to go work for a team uh, came out and he talked about how like the, the first year the Rockets tried this uh, threes and threes approach, they would, the teams that were playing against them would start shooting more three pointers against them specifically than they would against other teams. And it's like, you're, you're kind of teaching the opposition the correct strategy by doing it. It's kind of funny. Um, and we, we talked about this because when I was on Jeopardy, you know, I was playing what I think is very close to like a mathematically optimal strategy of betting very heavily on daily doubles, looking for them aggressively things like that. And you would see the people who were playing against me would, would uh, they may have come in with their own approach, but they realized, okay, we have to play this strategy to beat James. You know, they're the only people who have beaten me basically play it the exact way I did, you know, hunt aggressively, bet, bet everything when you hit the daily double, uh, that kind of stuff. And so it, it was funny, like I, something clicked in my head. I remember like uh, when I was betting basketball that season, I, I gave the, uh, the, the Rockets a terrible defensive efficiency grade, but it turns out, you know, they're, their defense was okay. They were just teaching the opponents how to play offense better, <laughs> which is um, kind of funny. Um, but, you know, it, it's tricky. Like, I mean, you have to decide what's right for viewer experience, right? Now, 
the NBA just decides, okay, there's way too many three-pointers now. What can we do about this? Well, you know, I mean, it's tough. You know, can you eliminate the three-point shot at this point in the sports trajectory? I don't think you can. You could push back the line maybe a little bit, make the court a little wider so that the corner threes can be a little longer. But um, it's it's tough. I think that, you know, the, the adjustment that baseball is going to make to spin rate pitchers and strikeouts right now is going to be an interesting thing. I'm not sure what effect the – crackdown on sticky stuff is going to have, but I'm interested to see it. You know, it's a, it's always been kind of a, a little give and take, you know, if the pitchers get too dominant, we, we change the rules a little bit. If people are hitting too many home runs, maybe we can deaden the baseball. you got to, you got to find that sweet spot. Yeah, no doubt. You know, it's funny that you, uh, that you mentioned your strategy in terms of basketball strategy. Cause I remember when I was watching, like I thought your jeopardy strategy was very, Rays like or Billy Bean Moneyball like because you played the game differently and more aggressively than anyone had ever played it. Uh, and I just I always wondered since you were such a baseball fan, was that more than a coincidence? Oh, I mean, I don't know that it was baseball specifically, but it definitely, you know, I think that the the attitude that an advantage gambler has, I think, was the most important thing, you know. If you're a savvy gambler, you don't mind being taken out of your comfort zone if it's what you need to do to to make a profit. You know, like if you let's say you're a card counter and you you find this deck that's just rich, completely rich in aces and face cards, and you you normally wouldn't bet more than a hundred dollars on a hand of blackjack. But if you see the best deck you're ever going to see in your life, you know maybe you you raise it up to a thousand. And to me, you know, I I came in knowing that I could get the daily double right 90% of the time. And to me, you know, being offered a 90, even money on a 90% bet, that's just a slam dunk. You, you want to bet as much as you can, as long as you, you're not jeopardizing a free victory. So like at the end of an episode, if I already had a big lead, I would ease up a little bit because I, I didn't want to take a small chance that I could wreck a sure thing. But leading up to that, you know, it's, it's just too good of an offer to pass up. All right. Let me ask it this way. Um, you know, it, it felt like Jeopardy fans reacted to you in the way, not just th- that you won, but the way you won. Kind of like traditional baseball fans now react to analytics. Did you feel a- an analytics-type backlash? Uh, yeah, absolutely I did. I, um, I think there were some people who wrote columns uh, that like specifically compared the two things. Uh, and, you know, I, I mean, it made sense. You know, I, I very much came at this from like a money ball approach. Like here, here's something that people aren't doing and should be doing, you know, and that, that can be my advantage over them. And I think, you know, it, it, this is getting tough in sports now because front offices are really smart. They're doing a good job these days, but you know, if you, if you identify something that the other people are not doing mathematically well, then that, that is your chance to take an advantage over them. True, but that like that backlash is still a real thing. It, you know, I'm like I'm fascinated by it because I I think that thinking in the game now is amazing. The information in baseball now is amazing. So why would teams not want to use all of it? Um, but there's still a backlash to doing that. So so what would you tell traditional baseball fans who complain all the time? that analytics are ruining baseball? Well, I got to tell you, on, on some level, I agree with them. You know, I, I'm a guy who likes seeing balls in play and stolen bases and uh, things like this. And they are kind of being phased out of the game by, you know, determining that, hey, these these are not the best way to win baseball games. And I don't know. It, it, it does hurt the viewer experience a little bit for me. But I think, you know, just in general, you, you can't crime a team for trying to win. 
they're, they're not breaking any rules or anything, you know, I mean, if things really get too terrible, Hey, we can, we can tinker with some stuff. I would like to see fewer strikeouts in baseball. I think that we can, we can work with that, but you know, it's, you know, strikeouts are really good if you're a pitcher. So I can, I can see why they're prizing them. <laughs> Maybe they can tinker with the baseball somehow and uh, kind of restore some balance to that. Yeah. Doug and I were just talking about this. Um, you know, they're obviously cracking down on spin rate, but now the next frontier is velocity and how you neutralize velocity. You, you have a favorite idea that you would like to see? Uh, I don't know. That, that, that's going to be tough. Uh, I don't think I can provide any, uh, I mean, what can you do? You have to like disincentivize it. And right now, you know, the pitchers who throw the hardest are getting the most strikeouts and providing the most value to their teams. And I mean, like other than, you know, the fact that they're they're hurting their elbows and shoulders, really, like what disincentive is there? It's not a whole lot. Well, James, I mean, well, one thing I'd have to add, they, they are breaking the rules. That's that's the thing. You know, there's a lot <laughs> well, of... Well, okay. <laughs> so, 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 so I guess my question is, if do you look at baseball trying to adapt fairly quickly to get ahead of these things, right? So let's say sticky substances. What does that do to a betting line? Like I, I noticed in your article, you talk about like, okay, a player gets hurt. All of a sudden, there's an advantage to betting in-game because they don't have time to rebalance things as quickly. Uh, so but what about a rule change? Like, okay, they're going to crack down literally today as we're recording on sticky substances. What do, you, what do those type of things, these type of rule changes do to betting lines typically? Yeah, so that's interesting. Um, you don't entirely know because... I'm not a kinesiologist, you know, I can't tell you exactly what uh, spider tech will do to offense if you just get rid of it overnight. First of all, nobody knows how strictly these things are going to be enforced. You know, they can talk a big game, but they might not actually want to throw Jacob deGrom out in the first inning because he, you know, had something weird looking on his arm, you know. So it's kind of a big guessing game, but I will say like, this is a thing that gamblers can get an advantage on if they're paying attention. I remember um, the, the one season that the, uh, the old XFL was in business, you know, they, they started out with a big talk about how we weren't going to have any of these rules that, uh, that make the NFL all boring, but then, you know, they, they kind of changed the rules by week by week as they discovered that things weren't working. And uh, I wasn't gambling yet at that time, but people who were, they, they would pay attention to the news and they would, like if they change the rules for county pass interference, they would bet like the under on every single game that week and clean up because, you know, this was a thing that they were paying attention to more than the, the books were. And, you know, you got, I mean, everyone knows that the sticky stuff thing is happening, but I, I think that nobody is really certain exactly what kind of effect it's going to have. And if you are the type of person who has some, some inside knowledge of, you know, which pitchers are benefiting the most from this kind of stuff, that could be, real good, but I, I'm not connected enough to have that sort of knowledge. Uh -huh. So, I mean, have you already spent the last week or so analyzing spin rates and the decline <laughs> in spin rates? Because, you know, as our as our colleague Eno Saris has been charting, there's been uh, a, a notable decline in spin rates in the last week involving, uh, it's more than a third of the pitchers in baseball have had a significant drop already. Yeah, that's the thing. So, you know, if, if if the sports books think, okay, this offense is going to go up 5% across the league, then they'll just adjust the over-unders by that amount. And, you know, it affects both teams equally. So they, the game lines probably won't change that much. But, you know, if you're the type of person who can identify, okay, here is the subset of pitchers who are going to suffer the most from this, and here's the ones who are not going to suffer, 
then yes, that can absolutely be a, a way that you can take advantage of this thing. And, you know, you're, you're kind of gambling that they're going to enforce the rules. Nobody really knows how strictly they will, but I guess maybe we'll find out along the way. But yeah, it is, it is a, uh, an opportunity, shall we say. We're going to find out. <laughs> There's no doubt about that. I uh, need to ask you uh, a little about Jeopardy. Um, I'm a lifelong Jeopardy fan, and I'll be honest, I've had a, I've had a hard time watching Jeopardy without Alex Trebek. And uh, when Alex died last year, uh, Doug and I invited our friend uh, Andy Baggerly, who covers the Giants and had a little Jeopardy run himself onto this podcast to talk about Alex. But, uh, I mean, you did so many shows. Do you have a favorite Alex Trebek memory? <laughs> you know, uh, I, I don't know what uh, what the censors do with this show. But anyway, like, uh, so, you know, Alex has this uh, kind of gentle uncle demeanor on screen, but uh, he, he, came, he came to shake my hand after one of my, uh, my victories. And he kind of pointed to the, all the, the contestants who were, um, so they, they take five episodes in a day. And the contestants were waiting to go on the next show or like watching the audience going on. And then uh, after... Like I won the first episode of the day. He pointed to the, the, the contestants waiting to play in the audience. He's like, "Look at them! They're all scared shitless, going, oh shit! I have to, I have to play this guy next.'" And I thought it was really uh, cool to see him in his uh, kind of everyday talking mode. <laughs> That's tremendous. How, how would you describe um, Alex? Uh, the way he interacted with people like you, um, just the way he he weaved the magic of that show, I mean, for so many years. Yeah, he was incredible. You know, so so he went public with his diagnosis um, in the middle of when I was taping my episodes. It was a while before they appeared on TV, but I think uh, like I was in my, my fifth or sixth week of taping and he went public with the diagnosis. So he must have been, you know, suffering from this condition the whole time. And you just never would have known anything was different if you, uh, if you, if you didn't say anything. It was just amazing, like... I heard uh, from the producers that, you know, he was completely devoid of energy by the end of the day, but he, he just, you know, this was a thing he loved doing and he poured his heart and soul into it uh, right up. I think, I think he taped um, some episodes like a few days before his passing. So I think that we can all take a little inspiration for how he showed up and gave his everything every day. And, you know, and I guess you, were you a long time, you know, fan? I mean, it was just, you know, something that was always part of your life. Yeah, so I would say that um, you, you were in the Chicago area for a while. You might know that, well, you of course know that they have afternoon baseball there. And they also show Jeopardy in the afternoon, uh, unlike most places where it's on at like 7, 7.30. So I uh, had control of the TV until my dad got home from work. And I had like Jeopardy on at 3.30. I had Cubs games on at 1.20. So I think this is, was kind of like the chart for my, my interest as an adult. I just that I, I was exposed to... Lots of baseball at a young age, lots of Jeopardy at a young age, and I thought, hey, these these are you know fun things that it, it would be real fun if I could get a job doing something with one of these things. <laughs> so, so you, you you dreamed about playing for the Cubs? You dreamed about <laughs> running the Cubs? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think I discovered from a young age that one of those paths was much more likely <laughs> than the other. I don't know. I I think now that I know more about what. Um, yeah, not that I've ever worked in a front office, but I, I, I've heard stories from people who have, and it's, I'm not sure that the GM life is for me, but I think like a, you know, a player analyst, uh, strategy type person, you know, someone who can, who can, 
be the guy who says, hey, wait a minute, we should be shooting three-pointers, or we should be shifting all the time. You know, that that kind of thing is more my speed. Mm-hmm. I mean, could you be a consultant for somebody, that, that, that sort of gig? Yeah. Yeah, you know, I don't know that they uh, they hire consultants in such a uh, such terms, but <laughs> I guess that's essentially what a lot of the people who, who work in these offices are doing, you know. Yeah, probably if you're really good at betting on sports and winning a t- couple million dollars on Jeopardy, that probably pays better anyway. <laughs> well, yeah, it would, it would not be for the money. <laughs> I, don't, I think anyone who works in, uh, in baseball could tell you that. You know, I think, like... You know, a lot of the people, I'm sure they love their jobs, but these realistically are people who could be making more money working for Wall Street or Microsoft or somewhere, and they just, they love the game. They love, you know, contributing to a, a winning product out there. Yeah, that's exactly right. Well, I, I've watched you on TV many times, and it, it often feels like you know everything about everything. <laughs> but now we're going to find out how much you know about my co-host, Mr. Doug Glanville. We're yeah. going to play America's Favorite Game, Know your Doug Glanville trivia. Yeah. Worldwide leader. Uh-oh. Highly rated show. <laughs> it's not. All right. Yeah. So you, you up for some fun uh, Doug Glanville trivia questions? I, I will make it easy and give you multiple choice. Okay. I'll do my best. <laughs> sure. What could go wrong, huh? Uh, okay. Well, keep in mind, I probably will get it wrong, so it's okay. Yeah. Well, should we try I that? probably will get it yeah, wrong. Yeah. Let, let's do that. Let's have you both. <laughs> Answer these questions, and we'll see who gets what right. Okay, let's let, let's do this. All right, uh, here's the first question. Which of these famous people had more wins above replacement for the Cubs? Is it A, former Cubs number one pick Doug Glanville? Is it B, Cubs legend turned Cubs manager David Ross? Or C, the guy that Glanville was traded for, Mickey Morandini? Uh, this is baseball reference uh, war, by the way. So, okay, Glanville, so Ross, Morandini. Mickey Morandini, I believe, played, I want to say, three years for the Cubs after this trade. And he was he had one good year, but I don't know that uh, he did much in the other two. Uh, David Ross, I would think, has accomplished very you know, little from a war standpoint as a personal catcher to John Lester. Uh, I'm going to go with Doug on the basis of his defense. All right, Doug, yeah. what do you think? So th- this war had to be in a Cubs uniform? In a Cubs or uniform. Just... Yeah. Mm. I, I, almost did your total, I almost did your total war because that was yeah. also a good one. But James uh, is a Cubs wow. fan. We're going we're gonna to make this Cubs specific. That's a tough one. I only had a year. <laughs> I only had like a year plus. Um, how long was Ross with the Cubs anyway? Well, he was he was there. Was it two years, James? But he didn't three years, three years yeah. right? But he, it's not like he played every day. Although he played a lot going down All the right. stretch. I'll, I'll pick myself. Why not? Sounds good. I don't know. Okay, so that's your final answer for both of you guys, right? <laughs> right. Doug Glanville. Yeah, I'll take. All right, I, I regret to I regret to report that uh, <laughs> the answer is actually Mickey Morandini. Yes, he was worth two point eight wins. Glanville worth two point zero. David Ross, one and a half. But obviously, Doug, you were undervalued <laughs> by war. So, <laughs> so that's, clear, that's not man. a fair question. The defense wasn't given enough love. <laughs> <laughs> no, exactly. Uh, all right. Let, okay, let's try another one. Um, which of these guys stole more bases for the Cubs? 
Is it oh. A, noted speedster Doug Glanville, B, Glanville's 2003 Cubs teammate Kenny Lofton, or mm. C, the starting shortstop for the 2016 Cubs, Addison Russell. So it's Glanville, Lofton, Russell. Okay, so Kenny was only on the Cubs for like two months after the trade <laughs> deadline. I don't think he could possibly beat him. Um, Russell was on the team for, what, three and a half years, something uh, like that, before his career kind of got derailed. He wasn't a super speedster. Uh, I'm going to go with Doug again. Doug, what do you think? All right. Well, since he's taken me, that, and I feel good about that, so I'll go Addison <laughs> Russell. You can, take whatever you, you can take whatever you want. You can take I'm ta- you, you, no, You're trying to win this out thing. There. Well, I'm going to say Addison okay, Russell. So, okay, so Glanville's got Addison Russell. James has Doug Glanville. And the correct answer is <laughs> Doug Glanville. <Okay. laughs> 21 to 19. Uh, Kenny Lofton was a force, but it, it was, you're right. He wasn't there long. 12 stolen bases in that brief time. Um, nice. Doug, if you get this one wrong, uh, it, we're in bad shape on this show. Yeah. Uh, okay, which of these was Glanville's greatest postseason moment? I could say as a Cub, but it's actually the same thing for yeah, anybody. Period. Oh, Puerto Rico. We won the, we won the so championship in Puerto Rico. <laughs> Wait, we, yeah, we, we lost you there? Yeah we, won, yeah, we won the championship in Puerto Rico. So that, that you know, world championship. So that's, right, that's number one. We're, we're not counting any, <laughs> any Puerto Rican winter league activity here. Okay? So, Glanville's greatest postseason moment. Was it A... A leadoff homer against John Smoltz in Game 2 of the 2003 Division Series. B, game-winning pinch triple off Braden Looper, Game 3 of the 2003 NLCS. Or C, his advice to Moises Alou not to throw his glove in anger if a fan (laughs) tried to catch a foul ball he was chasing. (laughs) Doug, you might Boy, even be ineligible been, to answer this one, but go ahead. Yeah, I, that would have been very impressive. Uh, I'll avoid myself. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm going to guess only one of these things actually happened. Uh, the <laughs> pinch triple. <laughs> okay, you're going to go with pinch triple, Doug. What are you going with? <laughs> Well, I can, I can confirm he is correct. <laughs> that I can do. Uh, although I like the glove aloo thing, you know, I I kind of do enjoy that. I always wondered if he didn't yeah. argue as long, what would have happened? I don't know. So yeah. yes, that yeah. is correct. Braden Looper. Uh, uh, yeah, eleventh inning pinch triple. That was a real thing. It, it only comes up on this show. I'd say not more than like twenty times a year. Right. <laughs> So, you know why I said this yes. with such uncertainty? Because uh, I had a I had a college exam the night of Game Three, and I remember being angry that they wouldn't reschedule this because, like, how often are the Cubs in the NLCS? <laughs> I uh, I think I had to catch video highlights of that game later on, but I should uh, I should have known that better. It was late. <laughs> no, too. It's okay. It was like after midnight or something. It was pretty late. Yeah. It, it was, yeah. it was the eleventh inning of a of a of a postseason game. We know those things don't zip along, but I remember it, Doug. I was there. Still get goosebumps thinking about that. So, all right. So what do you think, James? Know your Doug Glanville trivia. You think this is a, a major national hit waiting to happen? <laughs> it's a good game. It deserves a wider audience. <laughs> yes. Of course it does. Absolutely. And and I'm, I'm, I'm proud that we, we stumped him with a Doug Glanville question. 
Doug? Well, the questions here are harder than they are on, uh, say, the chase, for example. So <laughs> really? I'll tell you that. I, I don't think I've ever gotten a single question on the chase. <laughs> yeah. But, you, but as I said, you know stuff. Well, actually, speaking of trivia, um, I'm sure you know that uh, on this show, Doug and I aspire to answer a trivia question from a listener every week. And this year, we would I would say we've been especially bad at it, especially bad. So could we convince you to stick around for another few minutes so um, maybe you can help us end our losing streak, which I'm pretty sure is now, is it, is it seven wrong answers in a row, Doug? I think. Look, we're, we're not even lot. close to the 97 Cubs. I am not worried about it. I feel <laughs> pretty good. <laughs> you, you, you can have me stick around, but I will say this. Like, people, uh, you know, since I got famous, have always come up to me trying to answer me a trivia question. I have never gotten one right because they ask me, like, the hardest, most obscure thing they know. And uh, it's not really a fair part. <laughs> hey, like, I'm that guy, too. I'm, you know, I ask a lot of trivia questions. It's been a staple of my columns, my TV stuff, Mike and Mike. And so people are always hitting me with these trivia questions. And one thing I've learned, and especially on this show, it's a way better gig to be asking the trivia questions than trying to answer them. So that's one of the reasons we really admire you. So you will stick around for a few minutes, right? Sure. Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever. And that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. One more great product from LinkedIn. You're there to network. You're there to look for jobs. You're there to post jobs. And how about LinkedIn Sales Navigator? It's a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, surface key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash baseball show. That is linkedin.com slash baseball show for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash baseball show and get started. It's time for listener trivia, our way of involving you, our favorite listeners, in this show and once again we continue to literally involve you by picking the most fun listener trivia question of the week and then inviting you to join us on this very podcast live to stump us with your questions we'll tell you how you can do that in just a few minutes but first since we have james holsauer jeopardy champion here i i think i'd like to ask james a really important question you know, in Jeopardy, uh, I've seen you answer every question imaginable. Uh, it's intense. I'm sure there were moments you felt a lot of pressure on that show. But now, here on your Starkville debut, we are literally assigning you the job of ending our two-month trivial losing streak. <laughs> so which would you say was more pressure? Is it one of those $50,000 final Jeopardy wagers you made or your one shot? to answer one trivia question here in Starkville. Mm. Gosh, I don't know. I think uh, in both cases, if I get it wrong, I'm not coming back for the next episode. So. <laughs> <laughs> I feel your pain, man. 
Well, you know, just full we, disclosure, we, we used to have a what they called a, a cheating scheme. I disagree with that categorization. But it used to be Jason Stark would answer all his answers, and I'd answer all my answers, and then we combine them into one. So at some point, you have to share with how that would increase our odds. Uh, you know, and, and of course, there's now consideration of going back to that because we're getting we're getting beat down a little bit but just just throwing that out there there's consideration okay. going back to that huh <laughs> okay mm-hmm. I'll, yeah, yeah i'll explain there. this doug's doug's devious scheme to you in a second but we should bring in this week's special trivia guest star it's alex yeah. simon alex welcome to starkville thank you guys for having me uh you know it looks from your Twitter bio, like um, you're from Arizona and you're a member of the media like us. Did I get that right? Yeah, I do some freelance sports journalism. Um, I freelance actually for Major League Baseball writing for their website for a summer um, and just kind of really enjoy the sport. My dad and I have always been going to games. And so we always ask crazy questions to each other. <laughs> okay, We've come to the right place, but I'm going to guess that when you submitted this question, you thought you'd just be able to do what people do pretty much every week stump me and doug but suppose i told you then you were also going to have to stump james who won 32 jeopardy episodes in a row i uh i hope that my question is good enough to do it but i definitely would am a little more surprised to see him in the zoom call (laughs) right well you never know what you're going to encounter here on starkville so i know it's going to be memorable either way so alex It's that time. Hit us with your question, man. So what four pitchers had at least 200 games started and 100 saves? Okay, and uh, the saves. The saves became official in 1969, so this would be 100 saves since 1969. Is that correct? That would be correct, Okay, so four pitchers since 69, at Mm. least 200 starts and 100 saves. Um Doug, Doug, you know what we need? We don't need a cheating scheme. We need a smart guy like James to join us and save us. So, once again, no pressure at all here. We just Let's just put our heads together and come up with four pitchers with at least 200 starts and 100 saves. I know we can do that. I've, I've been thinking about this. One of them was a Cubs great, right? Dennis Eckersley. That's guaranteed to be right, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so now we have three to go. I, like, I'm... I'm pretty sure that Dave Rigetti has to be a second name. Mm, but then we, I don't think that Regs started for uh, as long. So to me, like hmm. when I hear 200 and 100, those numbers were chosen for a reason, right? Because oh, yeah. it's a guy who, you know, had a long career as a starter and then kind of transitions to closing, yeah, I think. What? Or, you know, in, in the case of John Smoltz, who I'm sure is the second name on the list, went Got back me. afterwards. But, you know, you're, you're talking like – you need more time as a starter than Rigetti, I think. Yeah, like I, I did wonder about that, and then the like, the reverse is Smoltz and Derek Lowe, right? Did they save a hundred? I'm still agonizing. Lowe closer long enough. I know, I know, he had like a couple seasons mm, there. That's I don't a know good if he one. got to hundred, but he, he's he's not a bad guess. Yeah. For sure. All right. Then I thought about uh, Flash Gordon, Tom Gordon. Tom Gordon, I think, is uh, yeah, pretty pretty, right. pretty likely to have gotten into That's 100. a good one. That's a good one. Yeah, yeah. Jason Isringhausen, maybe? Uh, I don't think Isringhausen was long enough as a starter. He he had many, many seasons as a closer. I want to say he had like 300 saves, but I don't think he got to 200 starts. Uh, probably not, but he was one of those chosen Mets luminaries mm-hmm. who turned out to be not, <laughs> not what they were supposed to be. Wade Davis? 
he couldn't have made 200 starts, right? Mm. Oh, yeah, I don't think he made it uh, uh, that far. Uh, I also thought about Terry Forster. That was uh, Goose Gossage's Ooh. running mate back in the yeah. day. So, like, those, those are the names. Whit Wilhelm was a starter for a while. He, I don't know if he made it to 200. And he's pre-69, too, right? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. So, otherwise, I think he'd be on that list. Uh, Doug, do you have any names you've been thinking about? I mean, well, I don't want to admit that. I know Trevor Hoffman and Rivera are both starters at different points. So, I don't know how many starts. But, but 200 starts. 200, 200 starts. Yeah. That, no yeah, way like, that. It's a lot of yeah. years, yeah. I guess so. No, um, uh-huh. but I, I mean, yeah, I love Smoltz. I love because you know, as we mentioned earlier, I, I did never had a home run off him. By the way, so it's all good. I think Eckersley 100 percent, Smoltz 100 percent. I feel real good about Tom Gordon. I'd be like 85 percent there. I'm not really sure on a fourth. I think Derek Lowe is a decent guess. I would expect Derek Lowe to be wrong, but I don't have a better name off the top of my head. Uh, like Doug, yeah. listen. I think we should pretty much go with whatever James says. Uh, for one thing, yeah. he's way smarter than us. For another yeah. thing, this way, if we get it wrong, we can just say let us astray. All right, uh, all right. Let's let's just find out what the answer is. Uh, <laughs> Alex, is there any chance that it's Dennis Eckersley, John Smoltz, Flash Gordon, and we decide Derek Lowe's our fourth? Derek Lowe, sure. Okay, yeah. let's do it. So you have three of the four. Oh, of course. Two that you guys have 100% on are correct. Yes, John Smoltz and Dennis Eckersley mm-hmm. are easily the two far and away that have the most starts. Yeah. And Smoltz did cross 150 saves. He finished with 154. Yeah. Tom Gordon is also correct. He got to 203 starts Ooh, and 158 I... saves. Wow. Right, so the one we... that you did not get was Ron Reed. Oh, God. Ronnie Reed. <laughs> yeah, Before my please. time. Yeah, he, good one. He, got, he just cracked it. He got to 103 saves, but he had 236 starts. Yeah, he wasn't much of a starting. That's good. I, I don't think he was ever even really a closer, per se. You know, he was, he had, yeah. He had, those years in Philly, he was like kind of a co closer kind of guy, but. Yeah, I, kind of set up ne- guy. And never even one. crossed my mind. Rod yeah, Reed, with, love with those Philly years, he never had more than 17 saves in a single and season. Got to 100. But wow. over. All of those years, he got enough to cross if, 100. And if you'd said, and also played in the NBA, we would have gotten it. <laughs> <laughs> did he play in the NBA? I think he did. Uh, uh, Doug, this is incredible. Like We, we, we bring yeah. in a trivia genius, a man who won <laughs> over $2 million on Jeopardy, and somehow we still got this thing wrong. So, so, so we need James, to go well even we with our wrong man well even with my scheme it wouldn't have helped I mean, anyway because i ron reed was you not could have asked me to name a thousand pitchers you could have asked me to name a thousand pitchers and ron reed would not have been on my so, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I, I think this counts as a victory yeah this was yeah. an evil question i agree i like the optimism i like it three out of four yeah, so, you know? I, I, we have to figure out how yeah so we have to figure out how we're going to score this um uh like if we're we're going to we're going to say we're two and ten for the season, or you want to go with we're two and nine and James is zero and one? Oh yeah, <laughs> a tie maybe. No, we're team players. We're all in this together. Okay. All right, whatever. If you listen regularly, you know that whether we get the question right or wrong, usually wrong, we still bring in the mayor of Starkville, Tim McMaster, to cap off this segment by bringing the trivia question to life with a great play-by-play clip of one of these answers. So, Mayor Tim, what have you got for us today? I really thought you guys were going to get this one, Jason, because, you know, Reed 
a lot of those uh, saves in Philadelphia, obviously. I yeah. thought that might give you the edge, but you didn't quite get there. But we are going to go back <laughs> to the 80s, October 28th, 1989. The World Series, Game 4, and the Eck got the final out. A's trying to sweep, but the Giants have certainly not made life easy for them tonight. It's a ground ball to the right side, speared by Phillips. Flips Eckersley. Yes, he's there in time, and the A's are the world champions. You know, I, I, I was worried you were going to play that Kirk Gibson homer. I don't believe what I just saw. <laughs> but, but no, we have a benevolent mayor. It was Al Michaels, if I'm not mistaken, right? I love these trivia-inspired highlights. They're always fantastic, and by the time we're through playing them, Pretty much everyone's forgotten that we got the question wrong. <laughs> so that's my theory anyway, so let's just go with that. Uh, anyway, Mr. Mayor, thank you very much. Uh, Alex, f- fabulous question. Uh, we're going to let you go on with your regularly thanks, scheduled life now, but thanks for joining us here on Starkville. One quick additive thing. My father was at that game. The 89 oh, wow. game? He was in, he's had giant season tickets for a very long time. And so he was there for the earthquake game as well, but went back for the other two oh, games. Wow. So. He will love listening to the trivia question and hate being reminded about that game that he <laughs> yeah, has exactly. to listen to this all yeah. over again. So uh, I, I was also there at that earthquake game and that game and that earthquake game is quite quite a memory. We'll we'll tell that whole story of earthquake night sometime. But yeah, Alex, thanks please. so much. Thank you guys. Uh, finally, James, been so much fun to have you join us, man. Your your story is incredible. Uh, your trivia skills. Leave us in awe, despite that little glitch just now. <laughs> and that, that Doug Glanville trivia, I think, can take its toll on anybody. Yes, yes, really. You have Thanks, to guys, dig for having deep. me. An honor. Thanks, James. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, remember, you um, can now read James Holsauer's betting insights only in The Athletic. Uh, so, James, all the best. Come back and visit us anytime. Thanks, guys. I'm really excited for this gig. Strange but true. Doug, it's time for one of our favorite parts of this show. It's the strange but true. And um, I could not be more excited by something that one of the great strange but true characters in the game did the other day. I'm talking, of course, about the one, the only, Williams Astudio of the Twins. Now, this, this past week, he did not pitch or give up any home runs on 47-mile-per-hour 0-2 pitches. But believe it or not, he had actually done more of that this season than he'd done something else that he finally did do last Thursday. Why don't we listen to this magical baseball moment? 3-0 to Ostadio. His first walk of the year and a smile as he leaves home plate because he's heard it from the Twins' dugout. We could hear it on our telecast. Everybody hooting and hollering because he finally drew his first walk. Now that's a thing you don't hear much. That was the sound of Williams Astudio walking. Uh, But not just for the first time this year. For the first time in a year, eight months, and 22 days. So... uh, Okay, it's his first walk since September 24th, 2019. And just so you know, Doug, here's how long ago that was. In all that time that he was walking no times, Carlos Santana walked 92 times. <laughs> okay. 
So that's like roll that around your head for a minute. Same division even. But, uh, you know, here is what makes baseball the great sport it is. We have a player who doesn't walk for two years and then take a wild guess how long it took him to walk a second time. Well, did he? First, I want to know: Did he steal second and third? That's that's. <laughs> he did not. That would have been beautiful. I imagine <laughs> fairly quickly. Maybe the next at bat. What happened? Yeah. Yep. He went from two years without a walk to two innings. <laughs> okay, two innings later, he walked a second time. My goodness! It was so like it was such a, an amazing moment that Miguel Sano even asked for the ball. Oh yeah, got asked for the ball. <laughs> yes. All right. So he had never walked twice in any game in the big leagues. Um, he did have one in AAA four years ago. That was May of 2017. So I went and looked at this too. In between his multi-walk games, Mike Trout had 86 <laughs> multi-walk games. So uh, I, I found this to be fun, Doug. And since you were kind of the Williams Astudio of your era... <laughs> Uh, you know, you were a guy who kept the bat moving. Just wondered what your reaction was to this astonishing feat. Well, I, I feel pretty confident that the only time that I matched his walk futility was after <laughs> I retired and didn't play for two years. That's that's. I feel pretty good about that. Um, but I, I I think it's I think knowing my career, there was a certain stress of being a leadoff hitter or at least designated as a leadoff hitter. And you know, coming up, I was drafted on you know speed and contact and defense and really was never sure like how my power would develop. So there was much more of a culture of, hey, you're, the, you're this kind of guy. You got to be the leadoff. So you have to draw blocks or work counts. And it was, you know, now pretty much anybody hit the ball in the ballpark, right? So, so the focus on swinging from your heels and trying to go deep and all that was only permitted by people who are sort of set up to be these power hitters. And the thing that's hard about that is you can't really force yourself to walk. It takes away your aggressiveness in the zones that, where you are successful. It also can make you really tentative. So you have to kind of strike a balance between my natural swing and the fact that I actually was a high ball hitter and I can hit balls out of the zone above the letters versus my ability to say, all right, doing my job as a leadoff hitter. And because this, today there's hardly any of these prototypical, you know, well, first of all, there's only one Ricky Henderson, but the idea that someone could do all these things, hit for average, score runs, walk, steal bases, uh, that's, that's just a rare combination. So you end up having, the, you know, the best hitters in the game at the top sometimes, right, just to get there at bats. So I, so I kind of relate to feeling like your skill is driven by your ability to make contact or at least, at least your ability to expand the strike zone in a way that plays to your strength in making contact, that you don't want to take away that, that strength. If I took balls at the letters every time and maybe worked a walk, that actually works against the zone where I hit the most. Uh, and, and so for me, that was that was tough. So, yeah, I mean, I didn't strike out a ton comparatively, you know, especially today's day and age. I did generally put the ball in play. Uh, I had a pretty good, you know, two strike success. I know my first couple of years. So that so that's what I think about just how this idea of like walking, especially today where walks are kind of king of the on base percentage goals and how hard it is to actually just sort of make it so. You know, Carlos Santana, I think, has a certain talent for it. But 
most players don't have that kind of ability. And Astadio kind of knows who he is. <laughs> so, so he's like, I got to swing. You know, he's not going to walk 100 times a year and wake up two years later. He's not going to be that guy. So he's trying to do what he can do. He's not going to walk 100 times in his life. Probably not. So. <laughs> no, he's not. I mean, like, hey, like you, he, he definitely has bat-to-ball skills. Like, bat-to-ball skills that almost no one else on the planet has. And it's, so, it's a valuable like his talent is a valuable talent, just like yours was for all those years, a valuable talent. And like the whole walking thing uh, has a has a totally different context now than it had when you played. So I think there's that. And the other thing is, I'll, I'll confess, you were not really the Williams Astudio of your era. <laughs> okay, his career walk rate is two percent. <laughs> Oh, your career walk rate was 6%. So he actually makes you look like Joey Votto. Does <laughs> right. that sound about right? <laughs> That's about right. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's, uh, but yeah, it's different today. It is. And I know I understand and value the sense of like getting on base. You know, I, I do. But I also know that it's hard. You can't contrive it. That's, that's the tough thing. And that's why they draft players that have a certain sense of the zone, right? Uh, you know, there's, and, but I also, played at a time where, like you said, putting the ball in play or getting the bat on the ball, first of all, it played to my strength. Even if I wasn't hitting it hard, I'm putting pressure on the defense, the shortstops, getting on base, all those things. And and unlike now, I could many more chances to steal a base and be efficient at it. So those were other different assets that I felt were important for me to figure out a way to put pressure on defenses. And yeah, you can put pressure by walking, but I also knew my zone was expanded in the upper part of the zone. Like when I chased down in the zone, that was my bad. That was lack of discipline because that wasn't my hit, my pitch, especially sinker ballers. But when it came to expanding up in the zone, that's what I needed to do. And I remember early in the minor leagues, I chased a couple of high fastballs one game and my uh, roving hitting coach said to me, hey, you know, you, you may be able to get away with it here, but if you're facing Roger Clemens, you're never going to get on top of that fastball. That turned out to be completely untrue. Like I actually handled that pitch really well from power pitchers. And um, so I always had to keep that in mind. So yeah, that's the deal. I, I appreciate it. I don't know. I, I love Juan Samuel growing up. I knew he <laughs> was hacking. Uh, he said, you can't walk off the island. You know, I remember all these. So, you know, those guys are fun. Carlos Baerga hitting balls, like bouncing on the plate. Like, hey, I like to see their ability to... It's, it's a skill, right? Put the barrel on the bat and the ball wherever it is. I, I kind of like that. I like watching that. Yeah. I, you know, I just wish that two years after you, you retired, I had somehow commemorated two years since your last walk. Yeah. The way I commemorated this guy. Right, exactly. <laughs> I don't, I'm sorry. I really, I really should have honored <laughs> that, that feat. Missed opportunity. Yep, many. All right, that's going to do it for another fabulous edition of Starkville. You can find us every Tuesday right here in our new home as part of the Athletic Baseball Show. Every Monday, you get Ken Rosenthal's Mailbag. Thursdays, Hunter Pence and Grant Brisby. Friday, Keith Law and Derek Van Riper. All those shows are fantastic, so check them out. Also, the Athletic Baseball Show is available in its entirety, absolutely free, everywhere you get your podcasts. So be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can still find us ad-free at the Athletic app. 
So we'd love it if you would subscribe. And if you like what you hear, feel free to give us one of those five-star ratings. One more thing. If you'd like to read our work or any of the fantastic writing on our site, and remember, you can now read James Holzhauer on our site. There's no better sports writing being done anywhere than in The Athletic. So if you thought about subscribing, we are still offering an amazing special. If you go to theathletic.com slash baseball show, you can subscribe for just $3.99 a month. So check us out. Also remember, you too can be part of this podcast. Every week we invite the listener who submits the most fun trivia question of the week to join us and prove once again there's almost no baseball trivia question we can't get wrong. Uh, to do that, you can email us at starkville@theathletic.com, or you can do what most people do, fire those questions at us on Twitter. If someone were firing a question at Doug Glanville, how would that work, Doug? No problem. First of all, I have a glove, so I will catch it. It Good. is at Doug Glanville, D-O-U-G-G-L-A-N-V-I-L-L-E. And I am J-A-Y-S-O-N-S-T at Jason S-T. Please remember to hashtag the questions, hashtag Starkville QS. And if somebody else submits a question for us, you can answer it to yourself. But please don't post the answers on Twitter. That's all we ask. All right, Doug, thanks for playing. Thanks to James Holzhauer for visiting us. Thanks to Alex Simon for the trivia stumper. Thanks to our mayor, Tim McMaster, for producing us and putting up with us. And thanks to you all for listening. Coming up Thursday on the Athletic Baseball Show, it's Hunter Pence and Grant Brisby. And Doug and I will see you next Tuesday on Starkville.